G'day, I'm Rob. And I'm Dave. And you're listening to the Doctor Who Show, rounding out the month of October. This is Series 6, Episode 10 of the show. Dave, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Rob. Things are getting busier. The summer is definitely approaching. We're in the middle of spring. I'm looking out from my balcony over the Dandenong Ranges, the sun setting. It's all very beautiful. How good is that? Feel the serenity. Oh, very, very much so. Suburban life. It's fantastic. I, I highly recommend it because I do it too. <laughs> now, this is this is a big month, Dave. We've been gearing up for season or series, I should say, 13 this whole month and things have been dropping, which we'll talk about in a, in a moment. And indeed, a day, a day and a half after people hear this episode, if they hear it when it goes out, we will actually be reviewing the first episode of series 13. We will. It's actually got very, very close, very, very fast. Yes. <laughs> and of course, since we last spoke on the September monthly episode, we have done a whole special on the showrunner announcement. And we'll be sort of covering, I guess, in almost a mini special short topics, just a whole bunch of other stuff. But but I guess not going too far down the well, because we're going to be talking about real, actual, honest to God episodes in a week's time. Oh, we, we will. We will. And in fact... I did some math, which I uh, shared with you earlier in the week. In November, our listeners are going to hear from us eight times in total. <laughs> They're going to hear the flagship show at the end of the month. They're going to hear primary sources, list makers, and five of the six episodes from this new uh, series will be dropping in the month ahead. So all that content and still no Patreon. <laughs> well done. Um, yeah, no, there's, there's, there's going to be a lot. I'm, I'm glad a couple of those are already in the can. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So am I. But folks, you're going to hear a lot from us. Rob, has there been any news this month? There has, Dave. But I think with Series 13 about to start and our reviews kicking off, it'll be it's kind of nonsensical to sit here pontificating about what might happen when we're about to see what's going to happen for real. So what if we just keep it pretty brief to some of the bigger stuff that's out there? Yeah, absolutely. I think a couple of a couple of interesting stories, and then, as I say, we're going to sort of slide into our short topics this time with a few series thirteen related things. But yeah, I, why speculate about what's going to happen in episode one of the new series when we're going to watch it in six days' time? Yes, and and folk are going to hear from us in twenty four hours' time. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll bring up one, uh, Michael Sheen, who I I think I put him at number one when we did 14 for 14 as my pick for the doctor is really narrowing in the odds now the odds don't always mean everything but at some point when the odds start to really shift in someone's favor it's sometimes a sign that something is happening and he is i think about six to four on at the moment he is he is shockingly low odds to be the 14th doctor yeah i'm, I'm always interested about the way that the betting odds go because Generally speaking, bookies have no inside knowledge about politics or casting or anything like that. They simply follow the money and the money follows polls and receive wisdom. So if everybody's talking about Michael Sheen and putting on a sly few dollars or a sly few pounds, the bookies are like, oh, well, that's where the money goes. We'll lower the odds. And and suddenly it almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy on the back of nothing. Mm. But on the other hand, I'm very confident that Tennant, Capaldi and Whitaker all became very, very short odds mm -hmm. in the approach to their announcement. Yes. Yes, they did. And people are speculating that 
we'll probably get the 14th Doctor announcement at the end of this series as sort of, you know, deferring to Whitaker, letting her have her final full series before they announce it. But if it's out there, could it drop during the series? Who knows? Yes, they've actually been very good under the Chibnall era at keeping secrets. So it's not like RTD particularly where the moment contract was casted, it was sort of everybody knew. Mm. Uh, so look, it is possible that they have been cast and they're just holding off. But the more people who know, the more speculation that is going to come around. Mm. On the other hand, I did notice that Will Poulter, who's been one of my long-standing picks as a potential future Doctor, has just landed a role in an upcoming Marvel gig. And I don't know whether that makes him more likely to be the Doctor because he's, he's sort of window of notoriety and and popularity is bigger or does getting cast in a marvel role mean that he is now too Mm. popular and too well known to get the doctor i'm not quite sure how that goes Mm. yeah i think that might blow him out of the water and you know what i'm going to toss in another to our list of 14 for 14 which is which has grown to about 21 for 14 i think if we count them all at the moment and that's jessica hines I've got a feeling about Jessica Hines in the water at the moment. Yeah, look, there's a few names coming out there, but but nothing really with any substance behind them. It's all just vibe and, and feel at the moment. So we'll see how that goes. But I think that as the end of the Whitaker era gets closer, that speculation will ramp up and, and the bookies will also play a role. Oh, for sure. For sure. So keep an eye on them, folks. Absolutely. Um, a little article here from Den of Geek that crossed our desks and we thought would mention is an article about Chibnall saying how hard it was to find the next showrunner. And there's a particular paragraph here I'll just read out because I think it sort of sums it all up. Mm. During a recent press conference promoting the upcoming season 13 premiere, current showrunner Chris Chibnall answered some questions about passing the baton on to Davies, saying... I've been throwing batons at people for about a year now, and finally someone's picked it up. (laughs) And I don't know about you, Rob, but I just thought this was a very extraordinary thing for Chibnall to say, because it makes it sound like the process for hiring a new showrunner for the series is literally Chris Chibnall down the pub, maybe with a couple of mates from the BBC, and sort of (laughs) after the second or third drink, just... Mate, mate, do you, do you do you like want the job? Like, there's 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 a job going in the office, and I like I could get you an interview. Um, it's really weird. It reads really badly, and you think, well, Chibnall can't possibly have meant it the way it's coming across. But then you stop and think, this dude is a writer. This guy understands what words mean. How can he be saying this without knowing how this is coming across? Because it's coming across like the jobs are poison chalice that no one wants. I was throwing the offers out left, right and centre. <laughs> no one would take them. And finally, Russell had to go, oh, bugger it. Okay, I'll come in and do a season, you know, or two and, you know, sort of rescue you sort of thing. Yeah, there were real vibes of J&T circa 1989. And yes. the BBC executive was like, well, the only reason we're not moving J&T on is no other bugger will take the job. And yeah. we, of course, know in hindsight that wasn't the case. And I know it's not the case here. So it was a really just bizarre thing for Chibnall to say. But but you're right. For somebody who can write very well, and, and, and he's got his faults, we pick him up, but he, he can write very well, hmm. uh, that doesn't necessarily translate to being very good at press conferences, which, look, they are very different skills. Yeah, yeah, maybe he's just trying to be a bit loose and edgy and, you know, <laughs> it just but it just doesn't come across well at all. Yeah, and I mean, the other thing as well, of course, is that 
he didn't say nobody's picking the baton up because they think the show's rubbish or they don't want it. More, more likely, he's hanging out with people who have got their own projects and they're made unbooked for the next three years. Oh, that's a very kind way to look at it, Dave. <laughs> it, it is. Let's slide into our very general short topics this time, Robin. You've got a few things to, uh, well, just to bring up about the last month. Yeah, I mean, this last month is, has been the run-up to, to Series 13, as I was mentioning at the top of the show, and all sorts of different things have happened. And I, I was jotting down a few of them, and I thought, well, let's just loosely just, just note them on the show here, you know, because the show in some ways, this the first half of our shows is like a journal of record almost. You know, when you go back and listen to something that happened two or three years ago, you can really hear what was happening month to month. So I'd just like to note... Probably the weirdest thing that happened this month, Dave, was the social media shut-off <laughs> of, of Doctor Who a few weeks back, which may have made some sense if, and it's a big if, if they had made some sort of story or narrative around it, like, you know, Jody had popped up on the, uh, the socials saying we're under alien attack, we could get wiped out at any moment or something, and then the next day, all the socials are wiped. And you go, oh, okay, that relates to that. It's still a very weird strategy. It didn't need to be there. Uh, it stopped people from seeing things like the David Goodison return as Davros, which they'd only just dropped on their social media, and now suddenly it was gone for a day and a half because all the social media channels turned off. What a stupid strategy. But yeah, if they had done some sort of narrative around it, it may have made some sense. Instead, there was no narrative. The social media just turned off. And some people started to think, well, is this just an accident? And I don't think it could be because it was all the, the social media channels, which would be under different passwords. They're on different platforms, etc., etc. So I don't think they were hacked. I don't think it was anything like that. They deliberately turned these off. Since they came back, there's been no explanation why. And it just became a very weird, discombobulating, strange, <laughs> bloody thing. Um, Dave, I've, I've said a, a lot of words about it. Your, your take on it all. <laughs> Look, I didn't know it was happening until it was almost over and only then because people I follow on Twitter started to mention it. Did it get a little bit of traction on Twitter? Sure. But who cares? You know, Twitter is not the real world. Twitter is not reflective of anything. And, mm. and even then, when it started to trend on Twitter, we're talking about 2,000 mentions, of which half a dozen accounts account for about 20% of that, and bots will account for another half of that. So mm. it, it really didn't get any particular attention outside of the people who were watching the show anyway. And I, I thought it was quite a ridiculous idea and just the sort of you know nonsense that modern marketing firms come up with. However, I will <laughs> yes. say that what followed that, I thought was remarkably good. Uh, these examples of Jodie's message, or the Doctor's message, I really should say, suddenly breaking into other BBC trailers or promos or idents. And I actually thought that was a really cool idea. I suspect had we been living in the UK and you were just watching the news and a couple of trailers for some shows came on before the next thing and suddenly there's the Doctor. Oh my God, something's happening. <laughs> Mm. And you go, oh, that's that's really cool. That's Doctor Who must be coming back. I thought that was really clever. So we probably had the best of modern marketing and the worst of modern marketing, at least in my view. <laughs> yeah, look, as I was, I was talking to people about it at the time, because some people say, oh, this is great. It's got people talking about the show. And I was like, dude, they've got a trailer and a release date. That's going to get exactly the same people talking about the show. They don't need to turn off social media. 
in a past life, in between journalism and what I do now, I used to advise on social media and, and other aspects of PR and marketing to some of the world's biggest companies uh, here in Australia. And this is something I would not have advised in a million years. And if someone had come in with the idea, I would have shot it down in flames and said it was absolutely barking mad take that from someone who's worked in marketing you know but these people out there who have heard the phrase there's no such thing as bad publicity we're all out there on twitter saying oh it's just marvelous it got people talking and oh god they just couldn't see the big picture and i got tired of arguing about it after a while but uh, there you go yeah i was thinking about it and honestly of all the television shows i watch there are very few that I actually follow on social media. And and where I do, mainly that's because I'm waiting for the tweet to come out to say a new season's been commissioned and it's coming out on this date. And if that account is inactive for six months in the off-season, I don't notice. Mm. And, and that's for the two or three television series I do bother to follow on social media. Most of them, I just wait until I turn on Netflix and it says new episodes of this are out. Yay! Yeah, yeah, exactly right. But instead... They switched them off without any explanation. People did talk about it, but when people are openly laughing at your brand, that's not a good place to be. Not all publicity is good publicity, folks. Take it from me. Yeah, look, I think we've uh, said plenty on that, but a lot more has been happening that I think has been very positive in the couple of weeks since. Oh, of course. I mean, after that blackout, we had the, the date, which... A lot of people have been saying October 31st, including us, and that was true. Yep. And, of course, we got a trailer. Now, I know you're not big into trailers, Dave. I'm not particularly big into them myself because they just generally tend to get these wanky sort of people saying wanky things spliced with bass drops and, you know, little (laughs) random bits of footage. And it doesn't mean much in the end. But at the same time, it was nice to see some new things like the new look Sontaran, for example, on a horse. Yeah, I saw the trailer. I, you know, again, people were talking about it on social media. I went to YouTube and looked at it. I've watched it all of once, uh, but it did its job for me. I watched it. I saw lots of aliens, lots of explosions, lots of exciting things happening. And I thought, okay, cool. Show's coming back. Looks exciting. Lots of explosions. I'm in. And that's, that's all the trailer needs to do. And it did it for me. It's no doubt done it for other people. Yeah, exactly right. And all these people who for months and months on Twitter especially have been saying, where's the trailer? We need the trailer. (laughs) And I would reply to them and say, you probably get it about two or three weeks out from the show starting. And lo and behold, there it was. And now all of those appetites are satiated. Everyone's happy again. Yeah, I, I always said the only thing that a lack of a trailer told us was that the start date for the show was going to be later than we expected. And once we thought that the show was going to start at the end of October, a trailer about a third of the way into October was exactly where you'd expect it to be. And and again, I reflect on other TV shows I'm not a fan of or maybe I have some casual interest in. And, you know, you know, particularly like doing something like the Olympics or the footy finals, Mm. and they just drop a trailer for several weeks nonstop. And by the end of it, I'm not sitting there going that looks like a great new show. I might watch that. I'm going, I'm sick of you already. Go away. <laughs> exactly. And, and exactly. Doctor, you know, Doctor Who's been in this in the sweet spot. So that's that's good. And and look, it was an exciting trailer. It had lots of explosions and things going bang. That's all I want in a trailer. Yeah, 
Exactly. Uh, and, and quick final thing from me, uh, Jodie Whittaker's been out and about, of course, on the talking circuit, notably the Graham Norton show, where she, she got a good go uh, talking about the series and, and all of that stuff, and also got to sit on stage while Coldplay played, which seemed to thrill her no end. And one thing I've noticed through all of this, they're really talking up, this is your final season, Jodie, your final series, and all this. And I think even the new Radio Times cover, which I saw today, has got that on the cover too. And I thought, yeah, on one hand, yes, it is her final series. On the other hand, she's still the Doctor for another year and three specials. You know, I I don't know whether some more casual types are going to tune into this series and be very confused when it gets to the end and she doesn't regenerate or do anything remotely like it. And it's like, isn't this her final series? What's going on? Because that's how it's being spruced. I wonder if that'll cause a bit of confusion amongst the uh, the non-fans, among the more casuals. Uh, look, production teams and media are going to hype, and that's a nice little hook to hype it up. I think that's fair enough. Um, I haven't seen that interview because uh, my household is a Graham Norton free zone. Oh, uh, I see. <laughs> but I'm sure she did well. Right. All right. Well, they're the only points I'd made really about the past month. Did you have any? No, look, I think that's covered it all. I think that the build-up has been, with the exception of the media turnoff, which, look, in, in the end it was lame but not noticeable so who cares mm. um, with the exception of that I think that the build up over the last two three weeks has been really good I've, I've gone from a kind of general fan oh yeah the show's coming back that'll be cool to okay I'm really quite keen to see this I'm I'm ready for this now and that's means that's the job's been done I know people who are perhaps a little more laissez-faire or, or laconic about the show have gone oh yeah this looks cool I'll, I'll at least check out part one so again job done does part one keep them watching we will see. Uh, but something you did mention very quickly, Rob, and I will expand on, of course, is the season 17 Blu-ray being announced with a very cool trailer with some new film scenes with David Goodison as Davros. Uh, season 17 is not my favourite season. Uh, it is one, however, that I think has some really good stories and some really fun stories and one incredibly bad story. Mm-hmm. But I'm really keen to see it. It is a fun season to watch. I see they're doing new special effects on The Nightmare of Eden, which I think is a really good choice to do. I think that seeing that model work done with CGI is going to be really, really cool. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that one. And yes, what a shame that it got overshadowed by the whole social media dropout about 24 hours after the trailer dropped. Yeah, if I was Pete McTie, who who wrote and directed that, similar to what he did for the, the Season 24 box set with uh, The Doctor and Mel, that little piece, uh, I would be ropeable. But yeah. anyway. Yeah, there are a lot of people who saw a tweet that says, hey, check out this new Blu-ray trailer, it's really good, clicked on the link, account not known. Mm. That was a shame. Exactly. And look, at the end of the show, in one of our listener emails, we'll have some news on another Blu-ray box set that is imminent. Oh, exciting. I'm looking forward to that. Mm. But that moves us on to our main topic, Dave, which is season 20. And this was another example of where we've gone out to you good folks out there on Twitter and put it to a vote. Uh, We put up, what was it, season 11, 26, uh, 13 and 20. And we said, vote on it, guys. And Dave, this voting ping-ponged like I've never seen one of our votes ping-pong before. I think literally every one of those options was in the lead at some point, and three of the four were in last place at some point. Yes. (laughs) Extraordinary. It was extraordinary, and it ended up being a very tight vote. There's about seven points between the four of them. I don't know whether that means that you weren't particularly sure about any of the picks, or you loved all of our picks, but... (laughs) 
you you did reach a uh, a conclusion. And what were the final results, Rob? Dave, they were season eleven on twenty one point one percent, season twenty six on twenty four point nine percent, season thirteen on twenty five point four percent, and season twenty with my dear Davo. 28.6%. I didn't think he was going to get up. He was losing for most of it. Uh, what happened? I don't know. No, Davo did make a late run. And that's cool because there is a lot to talk about with season 20. And I'm I'm really excited to do one to chat. Yeah, look, I, I might kick off then. People know I'm a big Davison fan. And so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to speak as unbiasedly as I can. And I think from what I'm about to say, you, you'll see that I'm being quite unbiased. I think this is a season that it's fair to say is the weakest Davison season. It's actually the reason I put it up for the vote, because I think discussions can be more interesting when something is a bit odd or contentious, rather than, oh gee, that's a great story, and oh gee, that's another great story, which can be the case with some seasons that have just, you know, great story after great story. When I think of watching some Davo on a Saturday afternoon, I will watch Black Orchid or The Awakening before I watch King's Demons. Or I'll want to watch Earthshock or Kay's Vangizani before I want to watch Mordron Undead. And so on and so forth. There's really nothing in Season 20, even its best stories, that I actually desire to watch ahead of much of Davo's other two seasons. And that's a pretty damning thing to say, I know. But... Is it the whole story? I guess that's what we'll find out tonight. Yeah, I remember we had this discussion when we did our Davo special several years ago now. Mm. Uh, I think we both had season 21 as the best Davo and, and by quite a margin. But I had this as the second and you had season 19 as the second. And, yes. and, and I do think that holds up by a very narrow margin. I think that overall this is a more even season and a better made season than season 19, even though perhaps the highs of season 19 are higher than anything in season 20. That's something I definitely will be talking about, particularly when I look back at the uh, the letter grades that I've given this season. Um, look, I've got a couple of points to make. I'll, I'll make the first one before I throw back to you, Rob. Sure. This is the first season of Doctor Who I have any memory of watching. And that is being, I reckon, about four. I would have been yeah. watching it because... Dad was watching it, and I was obviously sitting next to him on the couch, you know, being being um, minded in the in yes. the way that parents do, and uh, <laughs> and I can remember the location shots from Mordred Undead of the School. I can remember a strange young man fiddling with a colourful candy stripe box as a scary gruff man stood behind him, being scary and gruff. I can remember a cool silver ball and going inside this wonderful bigger than. On the, on the inside and the outside spaceship. I can remember a giant crystal space station hanging in space. I can remember some of the sets of Terminus. And they're just those, you know, those sort of images that you get from when you're about four of memories. Mm. But I absolutely have memories of watching this go out on my dad's knee. Did you remember those uh, spray-painted walls in Terminus? They, they sort of stuck with me as a kid. No, I remember the big yellow and black line that you weren't allowed to cross. Oh, okay. Because yeah. I think as, even at the age of four, you get this idea of, you know, that's a bad line to cross. It's a big yellow line, don't cross it. Um, but mm. of course, I probably didn't see every episode. I probably was in the bath for some or would have been sent to bed for some. <laughs> and Dad would have been working shifts, so he probably wasn't home for some and watched them um, on, on tape. Um, for example, I know my dad was working night shift when episode three of Terminus went out, because we did have that on VHS. 
so um, I grew up with that. So yeah, that, that's that's my um my earliest memories of this. So Rob, do you have any other general points to make? Because I've got one more before we dive in. No, Dave, the floor is yours. Okay, thank you. Um, I really noticed with this season, and, it's, and I'm putting it up at the front here because I want to tease this out as we watch it again. I think it's really interesting to look at where the show was production-wise when this season was made. On the one hand, you've got John Nathan Turner doing his third year of the show, and if you count his three years as a production unit manager, basically a deputy producer, it's actually his sixth year producing Doctor Who in some form. And I think that the initial energy and innovation that he brought to season 18 particularly, and then to season 19 with Davo's first year, is lacking in this one, and you can kind of see... As many people who get to the third year of a job know, by the third year, you sort of know what you're doing and you're not quite as um, desperate to do it in a new and innovative way. <laughs> yes. Contrasted with that, Eric Saywood is basically doing his first full year as yeah. a script editor. And look, he, he started in season 19 with that. wasn't much more than, uh, hey, Eric, we've commissioned this story called Time Flight. Could you check the punctuation before we photocopy it? Like, <laughs> like that. that's all he's really done for script editing. And so you, you've got... A, a producer and a production team who kind of know what they're doing and they're, they're running on um, muscle memory a bit with a script editor who doesn't quite know what he's doing coming together. And I think where you really see that is with the music. When they went to the BBC Radiophonic Workshop to do the electronic music for Who, I've said before, season 18, there is some wonderful, exciting interview stuff. You think about Full Circle and State of Decay and Keeper of Truck and they all have really big, unique themes and, and songs and all the rest of it. The music for this season feels very it'll do, with the exception of one story, maybe. Mm. And so that sort of production vibe of, okay, we're just now churning it out, is a thing I, and a theme that I want to come back to. And I wanted to set that up before we dived into the episodes, which we will now, Rob, and you're kicking us off with a season opener. Yes, Ark of Infinity. Ark of Infinity. <laughs> the first thing I was struck by on rewatch, because like you, I rewatched everything before recording tonight, was how much of this is set on Gallifrey. Obviously, I knew the story, but in, in my head, for some reason, it was far more Amsterdam, far less Gallifrey, but it's not, you know, and I, I just found that a curious personal realisation. Uh, other people's mileage may vary on this. I just wanted to mention that at the top. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting observation because I don't think of this as being a Gallifrey story in the way I do something like The Deadly Assassin, which is on Gallifrey, or Invasion of Time, which is on Gallifrey. This is, as you said, it's the one in Amsterdam, but it's a lot on Gallifrey. Yeah, which which I just found really curious. Anyway, put that aside because it's, it's not a big point. As a story, this is messy. I know the background runs that Eric Sayward thought Keeper of Traken was so awesome that when he had this story, you know, to bring back Omega, reintroduce Teague and use some Amsterdam locations and so on, he was like, ha-ha, Johnny Byrne is the man. Apparently quite oblivious to the fact that Keeper of Traken was a major rewrite and not quite Byrne's work in the way he assumed <laughs> it was. So that that's kind of interesting. Uh, what's interesting, too, though, about being messy and the Ark of Infinity itself being some messy pseudoscience uh, and, and quite silly in some ways, is that I can still see what the story's trying to do. It just doesn't do it that well. Elements like, who is this Time Lord working with Omega? That might be interesting 
if it could have been more than just a few people to choose from. And when it can't be the woman, the, the number is cut down even more. And only Hedden is actually being nice to the doctor. So it's not much of a stretch to work out, really. I might pause there and let you jump in before I sort of summarise on it. I don't disagree with anything you've said, but I think I'm a little more well disposed to the Ark of Infinity than you are. I'm quite mm. fond of it for all its faults, but I, I, I do agree there is this sense of it could have been better, but yes. it is still a good story. It's got twists, it's got action beats, it's got location footage. Yes, the sets for Gallifrey are not nearly as good as they have been in the past. That's a shame. Some of the direction is really quite astounding. Like, the thing that really stands out for me is that Council of the Time Lords where they're all not facing each other. That seems really weird to me. But I I actually quite enjoy this. I like the Amsterdam setting. And I I think people, because Amsterdam isn't quite as an iconic and well-visited city as Paris don't appreciate that the running around Amsterdam scenes in part four are exactly the Amsterdam versions of what the scenes in Paris are, where the Doctor and Lala get back to the TARDIS via mm. every landmark in Paris. You know, you, you walk around Amsterdam, you go, oh, that's that, well, that, that, that's that bit, that's that bit. It's, it, it, it really is there. Yeah. I did, I did joke about it having Doctor Who's first on-screen gay couple, but um, I won't dwell on that. Because, <laughs> um, of course, the Mask of Mandraga did have the first, so it wasn't the first, it was the second. Um, there you go. I went further with that than I meant to. Um, <laughs> it, does, it does have a little bit too much fan wank for its own good. As, as somebody has once said, the cliffhanger only controls the Matrix for the average viewer is who's done what now. Yeah, um, I get that, but as I, I am a fan, this is thirty years old, and when I watch it, I enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. To to, to pick up on that point, we're what we're ten years on from the three Doctors. How many fans have come on board since then and not seen any repeats of of anything? Yes. You know, let alone the three Doctors to to really know about Omega. How many have seen the Deadly Assassin and really have an insight into the Matrix? So I I totally get what you're saying there. It's it assumes a lot of knowledge. Yeah, it, it does. And it also throws in what people might think is assumed knowledge. So when he's doing the old Hedden, my old friend, mm. there'll be fans in there going, oh, which story was Hedden in? Have I missed this? Yeah. Um, yeah, so look, it, th- that is a fault of it. But, but when I sat down and watched this, I enjoyed it. Yeah, look, the, the, the final note I've made here is all up. It's not appalling by any stretch of the imagination. It's just not great it's it's a bit messy and a bit basic and i'm not giving letters i'm giving actual numbers tonight dave and (laughs) i i would throw a six out of ten at it fair enough Uh, the final point i'll make is how good is davo with just nissa true very true I, i i like that uh i enjoyed it for all its faults i'm giving it a b Okay, well, I don't think we're too far away from each other. No, I'm, I'm probably a little bit more generous um, than you, yeah. but, but that's okay. Yeah. We might be a bit further apart on the next one, Rob. <laughs> well, let's see. Let's see. Uh, so, look, I'll kick us off on Snake Dance. I don't get Snake Dance. I know that this is a story loved by many fans. A lot of fans have this as their top or at least top three, four Davo story. Mm. I don't get it. I, I watched this again for the first time in probably since the 50th anniversary when I was doing panels with Richard for the uh, the local club on each year of the show. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we're talking seven, eight years since I've watched this. And, and I was utterly bored by a bunch of very bland characters 
walking around a bunch of very pastel-coloured sets, not really doing anything. Mm-hmm. And and Tegan, because she's had a bit of a rough night and didn't sleep too well, suddenly regresses to the age of four because she's wearing a Walkman and screams at toy snakes and what's going on? And then it sort of ended because some hippie dude on film with a bit of sand thrown on the studio set, I don't know, did something. Dave, 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 Dave. (laughs) I've set you up there, Rob. Slap me down. Agree with me. Where are you going? You have set me up very well. Because I'd forgotten how good the world building is in Snake Dance. It, it really hit home for me in the scene where the jester is, is capering around in the market square and he taps the doctor with a maraca. And it's explained to the doctor that, you know, that maraca has transferred some evil spirits and now he has to give a coin to keep the evil spirits away. But Davo doesn't have a coin, so the guy pays for him and all this. And I'm thinking, what a wonderful little bit of local color and and mythology they've just worked into that you know that two minute scene there wonderful however here's where i might agree with you a little the ideas outstrip the studio bound filming quite a lot you know we have we have all these great ideas like colorful bazaars like they're you know in morocco or something and we have the doctor out on this desert plain meeting the the wise man or as you call him the hippie i guess and, and they share a snake bite. Like, the dude grabs a snake. Unfortunately, it's just some little carpet snake or grass snake. <laughs> yeah. And then he pushes a rubber one onto his wrist. To, to be but, fair, for UK listeners, that's probably a very big snake. Well, yeah, true. <laughs> true. To us, it's more uh, worm-like. It's, it's tiny. Yeah. And they, sh- they they share this snake bite. And, and I was sitting there thinking, in modern Doctor Who, this sort of stuff would look dead set amazing because they could probably probably be in a real bazaar and that would look great and when he gets out on the desert plain it'd probably be a real desert and the snake they could probably make really realistic and you know them passing the snake between each other and we're we're both going to get bit by this snake and then have this spiritual experience there'd be music and all sorts and it would probably be absolutely i'm not i'm not exaggerating here i think it would be absolutely epic if this was made with modern tv uh, yep. abilities yep I, I absolutely agree it would be vastly benefited by a better production absolutely yeah so i i see what the story is doing but i do note that the ideas just outstrip the the way it's had to be filmed um what i will say though is even though it's a sequel to kinder i think it's a clever sequel you know we're somewhere else entirely we're not back on diva loca we're in this new place which has its whole other mythology around the mara you know, we've got Martin Clunes, who I think needs to be mentioned here. You know, he's, he's still a young man here, but he goes head-to-head with Davo and just holds his own so easily. You can see he's going to become a great actor one day. I, I know hindsight is twenty twenty, but you can just tell watching this, he is very, very good. So, yeah, I think it's actually a really good story, but just can't be realised as well as it deserves to be. And it is hard to accurately score because of that, but I would throw a seven and a half out of 10 at it for nine. Yeah. Look, what, what you've said is very fair and reasonable. I will say that as I watched it again, that world building and, you know, the entomology of the, the name of the planet and the history is a strength of the story. And that, that did raise my score a bit as I went on. And, and I also want to make a general point here, Rob, that one thing that I've learned about Davo as I've gone back and watched his era, having not really watched a lot of it, when I was younger, is that even a story I'm not enjoying, like Snake Dance, which I didn't enjoy, 
Davo is giving 100% and he's very, very capable. And I really did yes. appreciate in the weaker stories in this season just how good Davo is. I, I wanted to make that point. This started off a bit lower, but as I watched it, I did see the good in it, although I was frankly bored. I'm giving it a C. Wow, we've reversed positions almost on, on our first and second story. We have. Which brings us to the third story, Mordron Undead. Now, I'll take lead here because I think similar to Snake Dance, this is a story that I think is very interesting and it's quite imaginative. And I rate that kind of thing hugely in general. You know, I, I love seeing things that are interesting and imaginative. I think we all do. But perhaps in a similar way to Snake Dance, but for different reasons, what ends up on the screen doesn't always work. <laughs> now, there's a complexity there I know that a casual viewer might not grasp about regeneration, about the Brigadier, about the Black Guardian, and so on. You know, I, I, I think if someone had just started watching in the Davo era, for example, to see nice Mr. Tristan, you know, as the Doctor, <laughs> you know, they've just, they've just tuned in for that. All of this stuff... Again, the Brigadier, Regeneration, the Black Guardian, all of it would draw a complete blank, similar to what we were talking about with Ark of Infinity, talking about the Matrix and things like that. I get all that, but arguably the most complex aspect of the story, which is that there are two time zones happening within the story as the story sort of runs concurrently with each, that's all very easy to understand. So that is actually done quite well. Uh, maybe I'll pause there. I've got a few other points, but I'll pause there just to see where you're at with this one. I am very, very positively disposed to Mordred Undead. I found okay. this a very entertaining watch, and I continue to find it a very clever script. It is mythos-heavy, as you said, but the difference here is that rather than Omega being a character from the past, and everyone's quite like, what's this guy's deal? At least, even if you don't know who the Black Guardian is, you've got Valentine Dahl in a big black costume, and you go, look, I don't know what this guy's history is, but he's clearly a big, powerful baddie. So mm -hmm. so the audience can stay involved, which I think does put it up above the Ark of Infinity. I, I do like how it all works. I, I like the way that if you sit there, you can, you can watch the path of the homing beacon between time zones to end up back where it needs to at the start of the story. I think that's really clever, or the way that the Brigadier remembers being passed out and seeing the TARDIS disappear. He just doesn't remember how he got there, so he gives the wrong information. It, it all mm. works really, really cleverly. I think there are some really good design things. The location filming is really good. The interiors of the spaceship are really good. Um, the two-dimensional cardboard spaceship exterior is woeful. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely woeful, um, but but overall, I think it's got a good mix of of beats. Uh, I enjoy it. I want to have a good talk about Turlo and his introduction, but um, you said you had some more points first, Rob. Yeah, well, look, I was going to mention Turlo, but I don't have a lot to say, so I'll, I'll say it briefly. Uh, of of course, this story introduces Turlo. I think everyone out there would probably know that. And while the Black Guardian aspect of the story, or his story, is, I think, the least interesting thing, I think Mark Strickson himself is really quite good. You know, he, he's just a total slimy shit, you know, which is absolutely fascinating to watch and something quite different as a companion. Yes, I think that Mark Strickson is one of the best actors to appear as a companion in the series. I really do. I think he's extraordinarily good and extraordinarily good from moment one. I absolutely remember when I saw this for the second time, not when I was four, but probably when I was 10 or 11 maybe at a club meeting, 
And the scene where Turlo says to the principal or the headmaster, sir, it was all Ibbotson, and then turns around to Ibbotson and says, I told him it was all me. Mm. To a 10-year-old, that's about the most evil thing you can do. It's it's, <laughs> yeah. really, it's really quite clever how, how, how that's done. So I think he's really good. And I, I do want to push back against a point that he's often made about the Turlo character, not least, I've got to say, by Mark Strickland, including in the commentaries for these stories, where he says, oh, I spent all this time trying to kill the Doctor and that didn't work. And Eric Slayer said, yes, it was a ridiculous idea. He only spends one and a half stories trying to kill the Doctor. He He's introduced in Mordron with this, this twist that he's been recruited by the Black Guardian as the bad guy. In, in Terminus, he's already like, I, I, I can't just cold-bloodedly kill this guy, but okay, I'll, I'll push these buttons. And by enlightenment, he... He doesn't want to, and he says no to the Black Guardian. So there is an arc. I don't think it does run for more than a couple of stories. I think it works. Mm. I just don't like the Black Guardian that much as a concept because you mentioned how, you know, people see him as this big figure in black and they get the idea that he's evil. I mean, that even extends to the dialogue. I can't tell you whether it's Mordron Terminus or Enlightenment, which of the three stories. But he's commanding Turlo at one point, and he says, in the name of evil, you will do this. <laughs> and I think, you know, if, if you're someone smart like Turlo is, he's hyper smart. If someone is saying, in the name of evil, do this, you know they're probably not on the level. And, you know, whoever they're saying to do in is probably the person you need to be teamed up with. So, you know, there's there's some just odd things in the dialogue that make me go, oh, God, I don't like that at all. But, but no, oh, no, I'm not going to agree with you. I'm sorry, Rob, because mm-hmm. I think that the point is, first of all, that Turlo makes the deal with the devil under duress. And that that's very, very clear. And it's very, very clear as well that he's very quickly like, hang on, I, I just agreed to kill some random guy. I'm, I'm not sure I want to do that. And, and I think he does start to realise that this guy isn't a good guy. In fact, he is a bad guy. He has a conversation with who he thinks is the headmaster and he's actually the black guard in, in disguise. He says, no, this 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 makes no sense. This guy's a bad guy. So I, I actually think Tello does pick that up, but he he is cowardly, which is a very natural and I think very common characteristic that he sort of doesn't want to do it, but the, the big scary guy's making me do it and it's him or me. So I guess it's him. Mm. I, I actually like that. And I think it works. That scene with the headmaster is another unnatural sort of bit, though, where he's just told the headmaster everything, thinking it is the headmaster. And then then it's very convenient for him to turn into the Black Guardian and be like, oh, you just told me all that stuff, you know, Turlo. I don't think you would actually have revealed all of that stuff to a human headmaster in the first place. It seems very weird. If Turlo was a human himself, I would agree with you. But again... The wonderful thing about the character is he is very clearly from the start not human, and and we don't know Mm. quite where he's from, but we know he's not from here. And so the fact that he is just throughout this thing going, so anyway, there was this transmat capsule (laughs) where a human would be like, oh my God, I don't know what's going on. He's just like, yeah, so a transmat capsule came anyway. I I like Mm. that as well. It, It sounds as though we're diverging a bit more on this one with me going more positive. Rob, what was your score? Well, look, I'm in a position with Mordred Undead where I actually do like the story. I just don't think it's quite there. Could it have been better if we'd had um, Ian Chesterton instead of the Brigadier there? That's a whole other rabbit warren. We're probably not going to go down right now. But, you know, there, there are there is so much to say about it. But to get to a score, I would give it, and this may surprise you, 7 out of 10. I'm giving it a B plus. Okay. So you're ahead of me on that one. I am ahead of you, I think, on that one. And look, of the three we've done so far, that is my highest score. Mm, and in interesting. Fact, is it your high score? Yes. 
No. Uh, no, no. I gave seven and a half to Snake Dance. Seven, okay. No worries. Which leads us into Terminus. Mm. I think Terminus is underrated. <laughs> I, I, mm, yeah, okay. I am not putting up... I'm not putting it up to be the best in the season. I'm not putting it up to be a classic. My score is going to be uh, lower than a couple of other stories in this season. Well and truly low. But I actually find I enjoy a lot about Terminus. I think that Stephen Gallagher's big ideas are phenomenally cool big ideas. I think that when you realise that this is all about a number of ships, you've got the pirate ship, you've got the Terminus ship, you've got the, the transport ship, you've got some very cool ideas going on with what's happening in Terminus, you've got the idea with the Lazarus disease going on. I, I think there's some really interesting ideas there. You've got this idea of this company that's sort of got control of the veneer, and and, and Gallagher does go into this in a lot more in the novelization. I do recall, where the veneer are honourable people who've been put into a dishonourable circumstance, and that's really good. I think there are aspects of the production that look really good and that are very memorable. There are aspects of the production that are terrible. Mm. It's a shame that Eric Saywood wasn't as experienced enough as a script editor to push back a bit to Stephen Gallagher. I think if Stephen Gallagher had pitched this to Terence Dix, Terence Dix would have gone, well, that's a lovely idea. Let's talk about how we can chop 40% off it and make it work. Whereas mm. Eric Saywood just said, that's a lovely idea. Let's try and make it work. Handed it over to poor Mary Ridge, who I'll talk about more in a moment. But it didn't quite work on production. But I like the ideas and I like some of the set. I quite enjoy Terminus. It's underrated by fandom. Rob. Mm. Alrighty. Going into my rewatch, I knew this wasn't a great story. And this time around, I was particularly struck with how stagey it felt. Now, I know studio-bound stuff is harder to direct, but compared to even Snake Dance earlier in the same season, that at least tries to feel alive and in a real world, despite the studio setting. You know, when you're in that bazaar, you know it's in a studio, but they're trying really hard to make it feel alive. This feels like it's a stage play that someone's filming. This feels like something out of the 60s you know, with, with just a couple of cameras just filming people just acting on a stage. And I guess what surprises me most when I say all this is that this is a gritty story. You've got these guys in the in the highly theatrical-looking armour being ripped off by the Terminus company. The ship's pilot's dead. He's mummified. You've got the Lazars. You know, the piece is dark and depressing, and I normally love this kind of thing. I eat it up and think, this is really good. But somehow it just doesn't land for me. And I keep coming back, when I think about it, to the presentation more than anything else, this real theatrical, stagey kind of feel. I, I don't know if you have thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I did notice some of that. I, I don't think it's as prevalent as you perhaps have suggested, Rob. Mm. And this is where I come back to what I was saying about Mary Ridge. Now, for those who aren't aware in the listeners this is the only doctor who that mary Ridge. this is the only doctor who that mary ridge did but she did a number of blake sevens and and was in some circles considered by blake seven fans as being a director similar to the way we talk about rachel talalay as a director for new who a, a female director who really got action really got the series and, and he's quite a well-regarded director who did some very good episodes of blake seven there are scenes in this 
that I can see that direction coming through. And I think you can see which studio blocks were the ones where she was under pressure and which ones she wasn't. Uh, a lot of stuff on the ships that aren't Terminus, I actually think there's some really good, interesting shots around computers and around characters and looking over shoulders, peering at monitors. There's some really good use of the model work. For example, the lifts where they go down into Terminus is really well done. Then there's a lot of stuff that's on Terminus itself where it's very clear there were problems with the set. There were huge problems with the veneer costumes and the sound. And she lost a day of filming, all, all, all of that. And it, that does feel like, just for God's sake, get this in the camera. We've got seconds to go. And, and I think this is the one where Strixon was told, basically, just walk out on set and get 45 seconds of dialogue out in 30 seconds. Just edit it as you go. Yeah, it's pretty... Uh... <laughs> It's pretty telling, all that. Yeah. So I see what you're saying, but I think that there are signs of reusability in there. Okay. Now, we've, we should talk about Nissa here because this is Nissa's departure, which really doesn't work for me in this. I've got to say, you know, I get that she has the skills that can help these people, but bigger picture, I never thought she'd lock herself away like this. It, it seems a little odd, but I do, I do love the, you know... Um, like you, I'm indestructible line to Tegan. It's it's that kind of sad bravado people do in the face of death. And it's not that she's going to die anytime soon, but she is going to probably stay on Terminus and die. You know, it, it feels very genuine when that comes across. So there, there are little things I like. What, what about Nissa, Sarah Sutton for you in, in this? Look, Nissa's never been a particularly favourite companion of mine. Again, like Peter Davison, as I've got older and watched more of this era again, I've appreciated a lot more Sarah Sutton's ability as an actress. I think she's very good, particularly given how young she was. Mm. Um, but I never really sort of engaged with her in any particular way or level. Her departure, I think, you're right, it comes completely out of the blue and doesn't feel earned or natural. But the departure scene itself is really, really lovely and really well done. And Sutton and Fielding and Davison all play it really, really well. Yeah, yeah. It, it is a good scene. Um, to throw a score on this, I, I can't rate it too highly. And if I'm giving Arc of Infinity 6, this is probably only going to make five and a half for me. Look, fair enough. I gave Snake Dance a C and Arc of Infinity a B. So this is going between them as a C+. Plus. Okay, so, Dave, moving on to the, uh, well, the penultimate uh, story of this season. It's Enlightenment. And I've got to say, now we're talking. This one just hits the ground running. You know, we, we seem to be on an old ship. The command staff seem like dead set weirdos. Then we're in space. You know, what? <laughs> Where did the last 25 minutes go? Fabulous, fabulous start to this story. To compare it to the previous story too, here we are on spaceships in some pretty cramped interiors at times, all shot in the studio, and it doesn't feel like we're watching a stage play at all. The takeaway here for me is that Fiona Cummings' direction is really, really very good. And I know you were praising the other director and saying, you know, how much she was up against it at times, but I think Fiona Cumming here is just wonderful. Now, I have other points, but maybe I'll stop there. I agree that Enlightenment is certainly one of the better stories of the season. I don't think that it's the head and shoulders above the other standout classic that perhaps some people do. 
Uh, but it is it is very very good, and for the reasons you've said, that first episode and the cliffhanger is very very strong. The direction is really really good, and it's both the way that Fiona Cumming has got the designer to work with her, the lighting director to work with her, the model people to work with her. I, I think that it all comes together very well, and she she is a very talented director. My fault with this story is it does, in my view, and I really noticed this watching it back for this podcast, it does lurch between stuff happening for the sake of being weird to people talking to stuff happening that makes no sense to people talking. And it, it lacks, I think, a certain number of action beats and a certain amount of excitement. And it does feel very built around some set-piece moments, which are very cool set-piece moments and very well-executed set-piece moments. But mm. I, I, I don't think the story in this one is as strong as it perhaps could be. And I find it, therefore, a little bit hard to judge. More points coming, but but back to you for a bit. Yeah, well, look, I, I think the main thing here are the Eternals, and I think they're really interesting. I mean... Yep. The Davison Doctor describes them as parasitic. Maybe maybe they are a bit boring and a bit not so action-oriented, you know? Maybe maybe this story suits them. They are odd. You know, the crew of the Shadow aren't hostile to our heroes at all, but they're creepy and they're controlling, and their adversaries on the other ships are, of course, dangerous, especially Rack, you know, taking everyone out uh, through, throughout the course of the race. I guess for me, the whole Black Guardian thing continues, but thankfully ends here. And I note that when the White Guardian arrives, he's not well explained either, similar to how the Black Guardian wasn't well explained back in Mordron Undead. Uh, it Again, it assumes some knowledge, which I guess J&T and the team assumed viewers would have, but I'm not so sure. I mean, the key to time season was 1978, I think. Uh, this is 83. That's like half a decade since we last saw these dudes, uh, we're sort of in that territory again. But I do, I do think the story is a good one. Yeah, look, it is a good one, and you're right. The Eternals are a really good concept. The way that Mariner works, and and some of the really creepy underlying uh, ideas about the way that he um, uh, invades Tegan psychologically. You know, there, there's some real undertones there that I think are very powerful and very effectively done. I, I think that one thing I've really noticed when I watch this one is that on the shadow, you've got these very cr- creepy, understated Eternals in, in, in the Captain and Mariner. And you've set this concept of the Eternals up in that really effective and interesting way. You then go to the Buccaneer and you've got Captain Rack and you've got Lee John and everybody's sort of jolly and fun. And you go, the, h- how are these the same thing? And, and I think that and Linda Barron played it differently when, when when she's sort of feeding on the ephemerals what a good word that is when she's feeding on the ephemerals she is captain mm. rack <laughs> and then when the, she's alone she she's back to being an eternal i think that would have been a really interesting continuation of the concept maybe it's just because you've got linda baron and you just go well hey let's just be fun and entertaining and have her just yelling down the camera you know at the cliffhanger yeah. that that's fun i get it it's fun uh, it, it just stood out for me a bit. And, and then you've got Lee John and you're just going, what, what's he doing? He can't act for nuts, that's for sure. No, he, he, he really can't. And there are many really good effects here. The model works really, really good. That stuff, though, in the grid room, what's going on? That The visuals and what Mark Strickson's doing make no sense. Why, why do you have a room with a, 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 a grid that needs... Uh, and, and a great big... Uh, that stuff's just mm. nonsense. 
Yeah, yeah, it, it is. Although I do remember the first time I saw it and the two bodies are ejected at the end. I thought it's got to be the Doctor and Turlow. How will they get out of this? And yet it, it's not, which is an interesting sort of turnaround. You, you think of what sort of struggle must have happened once we stopped seeing what was going on in that room. It's actually it's actually quite violent when you think about it. Yeah, and it is interesting because I noted that as well. I think it is a very well-directed and produced scene in many ways. But for a story that has perhaps lacked a bit of action and a bit of excitement at points, to have the that scene happen off screen, I, I get it for the payoff of we think it's the Doctor and Turlow. And, and certainly I agree when I saw it the first time, I, I didn't think it would be the Doctor and Turlow because I knew they made it to the Five Doctors. But I... <laughs> <laughs> I, I did get a moment of, well, how do they get out of this? Yeah. Uh, so it does work, and I, I, I get the payoff is probably worth it, but it does mean that sort of the, the climactic action scene happens off screen before you get to the intellectual finale of the story. Mm. Now, look, all, all of this said, I I think this is the standout of the season. It's It's a real 8 out of 10 for me. Yeah, look, I think it's very, very strong in many ways. It, it's not perfect. I think it is the one story of the season where the music is even moderately good. And I think had the score for this story been done on non-electronic instruments, this would be a classic mm. score. I, I think it is reduced by the fact you've got this wonderful maritime score being done on an early 80s synthesizer. I think that's unfortunate. <laughs> yes. But at least it's actually got an interesting score. I'll, I'll give it points for that. I can't, however, put it above Mordred Undead, so I'm giving it a B-plus as well. Okay. Which takes us on to our last story. Takes us into our last story, The King's Demons. I went into The King's Demons expecting to utterly hate it. I I don't have a lot of respect for any of the two-parters in the Davison era, I've got to say. And look, this has got its flaws, but I've got to say, watching it back with an open mind, it is lavishly well-produced, it looks fantastic. The cast, with maybe one exception, depending on your mood, is very strong. And as a as a simple sit down and watch it, it works. When you start to think even a little bit hard about the plot, it's utter nonsense. It's it's a completely pointless concept. You know, there's there's absolutely no reason for the master to be there, and it's so obvious the doctor even says, "I don't know what he's doing here." And and it ends with the master staring at the TARDIS going, medieval misfits, and I wanted to cringe at that point. Mm. So I enjoyed it more than I thought, but it is very, very, very superficial. <laughs> yeah, look, as a two-parter, I always find this is an easy thing to watch whenever I see it. I believe it's the weakest of the three Davison two-parters, though. You know, I, th- I think Awakening is the best and Black Orchid's probably second best and all of that stuff. You've you've hit on something I noted down here because I actually laughed when the plan to disrupt Magna Carta is revealed and Davo is, is like, oh, that's kind of small time, <laughs> even for the Master. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know what a weird thing he's trying to pull off here. You know, it was, it was a very meta sort of moment. If this was the meddling monk, though, and it was some sort of 60s pastiche, that might actually work really well. Yes, absolutely. The, the, the problem is there's actually no reason for the master to do it. For example, in the Time Metal, which I think is a really good comparison, 
when they, the doctor says, why are you doing this? He says, oh, I'm going to bring forward technology and it's going to be doing a whole lot more interesting stuff a lot sooner. You go, okay, I get that. He, the master stops Magna Carta being signed, which means what? Mm. What, what, does, what, does, what does he get out of it? Just just kicks. Just yeah, <laughs> <shits> and gigs. <laughs> you <know>? Yeah. <laughs> Basically. I, I think Chameleon needs a mention here, Dave. We haven't got to him yet. I mean, yes, he's just a crap robot. For, but for the life of me, I don't know why he got sidelined when they decided that the robot was too hard to program or, or film or whatever it was. Just have him in some sort of humanoid form, JNT. You know, job done. <laughs> You weren't actually stuck with the robot. It's it's very strange. I think Chameleon sitting in a chair looks really good. It looks like a robot. It very clearly is not a man in a costume because there are bits that are too thin to actually do it. it, it even compared to C-3PO, mm. it looks much more like a robot. And I like, I like that. I, I get the production issues with having it interact with people but but you're right i mean do what they do in planet of fire have it found in the tardis lying down and two seconds later it turns into somebody um lack of imagination there but i I actually do think it looks cool for all the problems it caused the production team yeah Uh, in the end you know all jokes aside i guess they figured ah finally we're back to two companions and they just didn't want to start writing a third one in you know yes i i think that's probably the case and that's a point we're going to i think bring up in our closing thoughts i said that the cast with one possible exception is very very good rob what did you think of gerald flood (laughs) i think when he sings he's got a kind of metallica kind of vibe going on like he says you know we're gonna we're gonna go to war (laughs) and there's that ah on the end, it's it's very Metallica esque. I've got to say, uh, yeah. Look, uh, it's an interesting performance. You certainly watch watch him and take notice of him. Um, is it a good performance though? Uh, I'm still out to lunch on that. Yeah, I think it really is one of those performances that if you're in the right mood, you go, "This is just fun," and in the wrong mood, you go, "What is this guy doing?" Um, yeah, it's it's right in the middle of that. So I I I really can't pick it. But look. It's not a strong story. It falls apart. It's it's a wasted use of the master. It's got some cringe moments, but it looks really good. I, I don't know whether it's because some money that they were going to spend on Warhead at the end of the season when that got cancelled was brought across to, to, to help with it, maybe. I, I can't give it a high score, though. It is a bit nonsense, so I'm giving it a C. Yeah, for me, this is a hard one to rate. It's possibly the hardest of the whole season to rate, actually, because it's largely inoffensive. Yes. There's a bit of location work which opens up the world a little, makes it feel a bit bigger, more interesting than just a studio. But the plot is weak and it just ends really fast. Like everyone just runs off in different directions and it's over. Yeah. You know, uh, it's it's really quite bizarre at the ending. I think five and a half is maybe on the money for this out of ten. No, fair enough. There's a couple of things I want to tease out at the end of this chat, Rob. The first thing is just how close my scores across this season were. I've got mm. Cs through to B pluses. Yeah. So I didn't see a classic in this, but neither did I see an absolute dud in this. And I compare that to season 19 where Earthshock is now an A plus and Time Flight is a D, D or an E plus. Yeah. yeah. Like 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 there are there are real 
real stretches in quality in season 19. Season 21 has got lots of A's and A pluses and it ends with a twin dilemma. Mm. This is very, very even, I think. It, it, it's in that comfortable, consistent middle ground, which makes me well disposed to the season. Yeah, well, look, my scores average out, if people haven't been doing the math at home, my scores average out to six and a half. And I think that says enough, you know. Um, thinking more broadly... I think, that's, I think that's fair. I'll just say I think that's fair. Okay, okay, good. Yeah, uh, look, I think I've been fair with it. And I think if I was Davo with a patchy but interesting first season, I'd have been hoping that this season would have been more killer. And it's just not. It's six and a half uh, on average. And it's it's clear why he decided that season 21 would be his swan song even before he saw a single script for it because he'd been working through all of this. Now, you mentioned Warhead a moment ago. Would any of this have been different if we'd got Warhead in season 20? I think it would. You know, while it wouldn't have changed things a lot, I think adding a decent Dalek story, assuming it was going to be a decent Dalek story, uh, and re-averaging those scores might see me giving it, you know, an average in the sevens somewhere, which would be more like an average season than a slightly underperforming season, which is what I think a six and a half is. I think it's just slightly underperforming across the board. Yeah, I think that's a very fair comment, and it would have added an extra bit of variety and action to the season. One thing that really became obvious to me watching them all back to back, and I don't know whether this is the fault of Sayward as a new script editor perhaps, and ironically from from Sayward, is that there is a lack of very dramatic conclusions. Now, Mm. Ark of Infinity does end with the Doctor chasing Omega through Amsterdam and firing a great big space gun at him. I'll I'll pay that one. Um, Mordred Undead is not too bad. It's got a nice sort of flashbang, but it is the baddies just going, oh, we're dying, awesome, which isn't all that dramatic. Um, Terminus is just the Garm pushes a switch. Mm. Um, the King's Demons, I'm not actually sure how that ends. In, in Enlightenment has a really intelligent ending, but it is just people in a room talking about the ending. Snake Dance ends because everybody has to be quiet for a moment. Um, <laughs> you know, they, these aren't dramatic action-involved endings, and, and each of them... Like, 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 I get why the ending to Enlightenment works. I get thematically why the ending to Snake Dance works. I, I'm, I'm taking the piss a little bit. But mm. one after the other, there is a lack of big dramatic endings. And it's one thing you notice about, for example, the Holmes Hinchcliffe era. Even when you've got a very cerebral script and it's sort of got these things, there is that moment of let's just blow something up so it's exciting. And yes. I think that's, that's lacking. And the fact that it's done on Saywood's watch does say to me that he wasn't yet confident enough to really put his mark on things because when you get to season 21 there is a lot more of that sort of we need a big moment to finish the story it it does lack in this season Mm. yeah I concur with all of that yeah I'm surprised though that you rate the the season above 19 though if you can see all these flaws I think it's because I see a lot of lows in season 19. I, I see okay. highs in season 19. I think Earth, Earthstruck's fantastic. I, I love the visitation, but Black Orchid I don't rate very highly at all. Um, Time Flight is terrible. Castrovalva lurches between fascinating and dull. I'm fond of Fort of Doomsday. I like Kinder. Like, the, 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 again, if I was grading season 19, it would go everywhere from sort of A to A plus down to E. 
Mm. Um, so would season 21. The the consistency of the this one, I think, makes it a better season. And it's got more stories that I would pull out more often. And I think that's because I'm perhaps more willing to tolerate stuff like Arc of Infinity and Terminus than maybe a lot of fans are. All right, then. So what did you think out there at home? Why don't you drop us a line at hello at the dwshow.net and give us your thoughts on season 20? Yeah, please do. All right, Dave, let's round out the show. We've got a couple of pieces of uh, email here. I'll read the first one because it's actually addressing you. Oh, okay. Mm. It runs. Dear Dave, I was delighted to come across your excellent Doctor Who podcast. I recognized your voice immediately as I was an avid listener to the Blake 7 podcast Spacefall, which you co-hosted with Richard. Do you have plans to restart Spacefall and review seasons three and four of the show? Looking forward to listening to more of the Doctor Who show. Keep up the great work with Rob. Kind regards, Eddie, Melbourne, Australia. Oh, well, thank you for that, Eddie. And I hope you're enjoying coming out of lockdown in Melbourne as much as I am. I, <laughs> Spacefall is absolutely coming back. There are two more episodes recorded and they are, at least one of them is very close to being released and edited. Now that we can actually visit each other's homes again for the first time in a very long time in Melbourne, uh, Rich and I will be able to get together and start recording um, the next few. So hopefully we'll start turning those out a lot more regularly over the summer. Excellent. Excellent. And one email from me, and that is from Dave Young. Thanks for writing to us again. And Dave says, hello, Robin Dave. Just thought I would make contact here from the UK to say that Davo was the top guest at this year's Bedford WhoCon. Also with him was Janet and Sarah, so a full Fifth Doctor team. They were on sensational form, with Peter having written a sketch to perform with Janet, where she was given a ton of technobabble to spout supposedly a pet hate of hers. And I've seen that online. I, I, I saw this on Twitter the other day before Dave's email came in, and uh, it's actually really, really funny. Oh, okay. You'll have to send me the link to that, please. Okay. One little snippet of information which was revealed, the Season 20 Blu-ray set is almost ready for release, just needing some extra filming on some extra features. Mm. It will include a mammoth road trip, which the three of them took across to Germany, including all the way stops at various locations, including a Belgian chocolate factory where they had lifelike chocolate models made of them. This Janet, is sounding bizarre. This is, I don't know. Why would they go to Germany? I mean, Amsterdam maybe, but Germany? Why? Okay. I don't uh, know. No, no, no. Is, is Dave Young trolling us? <laughs> maybe, maybe. Uh, Janet said that she had been watching some extracts of this earlier in the green room, and it was hilarious. Also, Peter seemed to ditch any ideas for a further Five Doctors rebooted, thinking that it would perhaps not live up to the success of the first. A great day which raised over £6,000 for the local food bank. Still loving the show and the mini shows, but missed the old theme music. All the best, Dave Young. Well, where do I start there? Theme music. Maybe we'll bring the old theme music back for the uh, for the uh, the hot takes. How about that? They'll just throw it in randomly here and there. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Just for Dave Young. Why not? Why not? Um, look, that's all very interesting, and I'm I'm very excited to see that. One comment I did make on social media when I was watching all of these stories is that whatever you think of the Davison era, love it, hate it, 
they are a fantastic commentary team on the DVDs. Yes, yes. And I was talking recently, I don't know what show or what we were doing, Dave, but I was talking about the uh, Behind the Sofas where they were on season 24 and that was hilarious. Yes, they're all just at the right age now where they can be extremely rude and still lovable. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's great. Yeah. Alrighty, so thank you to Eddie and Dave for your emails. Of course, email us anytime at uh, hello at thedwshow.net. Dave, have you been watching anything this past month? Look, the honest answer is I've mostly been watching season 20. Um, mm, it, me it, too. In, in between, I have gone back and my sort of my, my random de-stressing, relaxing thing has been to watch some old Seinfeld repeats on Netflix, just sort of random episodes, which I've enjoyed. I did watch, though, the series Vigil, which is on streaming services here, but it's been going out in the UK over the last month or so. It's a six-part series about a detective solving a murder on a British submarine. Mm -hmm. I must admit, I wasn't too sure about this for this first episode or so, but once I realised that it wasn't remotely serious and it wasn't remotely credible and was just not quite a satire, I think that would be going too far, but, but... kind of a, just a ridiculous let's have fun with a bizarre concept and who cares about reality and just just sit back and enjoy the ride <laughs> kids i i did kind of sit back and enjoy that ride so uh that was fun but yeah that has been apparently been quite big in the uk mm, mm. for me i've uh well season 20 took up a lot of time this past uh, few weeks uh that's for sure i've been watching a youtube channel called history buffs which i've watched on and off for the past five years but he'll take historical movies and go through and say whether they're accurate or which bits are accurate, which bits aren't accurate. And it can be quite revealing to see how closely some historical movies are to history. For example, um, Midway is very historical, Mm -hmm. uh, whereas something like The Patriot is not. (laughs) (laughs) Remotely. Anything with Bill Gibson is pretty dodgy, actually. Mm. Oh, although We Were Soldiers isn't too bad, although that's based on a book, of course, by a fella who was there. True, true. Yes. Uh, and along with most of the rest of the world, I have watched Squid Game this past month. And yes, it's hugely violent, but gosh, it's it's interesting. It's great to see some TV from South Korea. And I was really engrossed in it. I'm not sure how a second season will go. Uh-huh. We'll leave it at that. Uh, but I did enjoy this first season. Yeah, look, I've heard lots of positive things about Squid Game. There are some people in the office that have been encouraging me to watch it. And look, maybe now that I've done my um my homework and watched all of season 20 in about three weeks, uh, I'll have more time to watch that. So uh, that could be good. Although there's a few good series, series coming back in November, so we'll see. Oh, there's a bunch of stuff. Uh, speaking of things coming back in November, when we come back at the end of November, not only will we have done, I think uh, I said five hot takes of uh, season 13 by then, but we'll be coming back with a new episode and we have a theme for it, Dave. Uh, yes, our next episode is going to be a light and fun one because we're going to be in the middle of churning out a whole bunch of hot takes. So we are going to talk about some ideas for Basically, what other TV shows we would like the TARDIS to land in. So we'll be putting particular TARDIS crews into other TV series. Yes, and a big shout out here to our listener, uh, Alicia Neptune on Twitter, or Latin Alice, as she is on YouTube, who once riffed on one of our shows, 
to give her viewers on YouTube a topic. And so now we're sort of riffing on that topic she gave them. Uh, we're riffing right back on that. And we're going to take people from Doctor Who and put them in other shows. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. I think it's going to be a, a lot of fun and a mix in with the new series. But the new series is only, by the time you listen to this, one sleep away. Is it going to be the great big finale for Jodie Whittaker that we're all loving and all hoping for and all expecting? Or will it be... A damp squib game. <laughs> How appropriate. Yeah. We will We will see. I have got an open mind, as I do before every season. Absolutely. I'm, I'm open. Absolutely. Yeah. But look, we will speak again very, very soon. We certainly will. Bye for now. Goodbye. You've been listening to... The Doctor Show! With Rob and Dave... Find us online by searching for The Doctor Who Show! We also love it when you write in. Drop us a line anytime at hello at thedwshow.net. <laughs>